0: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
1: One of my favorite quotes is from civil rights icon Bayard Rustin who said the proof that one truly believes is in action. There are few who embody Bayard's words as wholly and unapologetically as Abdul Ali Muhammad. An organizer and activist born and raised in West Philadelphia, Abdul Ali has grown into a firebrand. Whether standing up for queer, black, and brown communities in the face of systemic violence, or holding leaders in politics and at not-for-profits to account, Abdul Ali's work is loud, considered, and high-impact. Today, we discuss the ongoing impact of the 1985 bombing of the MOVE headquarters in West Philadelphia, the moments they were radicalized, what they learned about how people view those living with HIV after they went on a medication strike as part of their organizing action, and learning to trust when their body tells them what to do in defense of what's right. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Abdul Ali Muhammad. Ali, I am so honored, I'm I'm smiling so much, I'm so honored to finally be in conversation with you. Thank you so much for being here and for making time for me and for Busy Being Black listeners, thank you.
2: Thank you, thank you so much for who you are and the work you do and for this amazing podcast that I'm a huge fan of. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: Thank you. I wanted to start this conversation in the usual way I start conversations, but I really hold you in such high regard. And I wanted to just create space to acknowledge that the work you do, that that the brand of activism, and I don't mean brand as in branding.com, but I mean, the type of activism that you do often puts you directly in harm's way, um, it puts you in direct confrontation with the police. And I just, I wanna say thank you for doing that. You're, you're really inspiring, I think, to me and, and obviously to so many others. So I just wanted to start there.
2: Thank you, I received that. I appreciate that.
1: How's your heart?
2: <sighs> it's been heavy, honestly, it's been heavy. Um, I'm involved with some work recently in Philadelphia um pertaining to the remains of young black people being held at a museum um unbeknownst to the family. And so I you know I got word of this um last week and uh, it's been intense I've been crying a lot um and because I had to kind of work on a story to to tell the, tell the truth about what, what's going on, what is going on. And so that's been a lot to, to hold that uh, and to share it with family of the folks who are in, in the museum or whose remains are in the museum and sitting with their grief, sitting with their upset has been, it's been a lot.
1: Mm, and we're having this conversation um, a week later than we planned to um, because we kind of both came together after, um, you know, the Derek Chauvin trial to say that we needed a bit more space um, to grieve, to be angry, to be upset. And I'm just thinking how that on top of everything that we see as black people around the world about what we're experiencing, that what you've just told us is, is another layer of what's happening behind the scenes as well in, in ways that we don't yet know of.
2: Yes. Yeah. It's, it's heavy. It's, uh, you know, I don't know how much, you know, of the move bombing, but it was a big deal in Philadelphia. It happened, um, a day after mother's day, uh, in 1985. So I was, uh, you know, one in some change at the time. Um, and, you know, I grew up in West Philadelphia where this bombing happened, but it's the only time that a city has authorized the bombing of, of citizens for no other reason than their politics. Mm-hmm. And the police commissioner told the fire commissioner to let the fire burn. And in, in, you know, resulting in the death of 11 people including five children, all Black people.
1: And so these are the remains that are in the museum?
2: Yeah, remains of of two of the children who had been killed in the bombing. Um, Because the city, the medical examiner's office needed help in identifying the remains because they had been burned really badly. Uh, They hired uh, anthropologists from Penn, from the University of Pennsylvania to help in identifying the remains. And somehow when the remains were, were supposed to be handed off to family, some of the remains were held and kept and given to this anthropologist and used for university coursework.
1: I'm, I'm kind of speechless. Yeah. And what is, yeah, like, let's just let that sit there, that a decision was just made just to withhold the remains of these children and to just give them over for research. Yeah,
2: over for research. Wow. You know, we're coming upon the 36th uh, anniversary of the bombing, which is May 13th so it's you know
1: mm -hmm. do we know their names of the
2: yes uh tree africa and delicia africa 14. tree was 14 and delicia was 12 when the bombing happened
1: wow yeah i'm I'm just kind of speechless (laughs) What has that been like for you to? You you said that your heart is heavy, but you're having to encounter these families and their grief, and explain to them. Um, I mean, what? How do you begin a conversation like that?
2: I mean, I you know I was I was shocked when I heard the information. I can give you some context; it probably is helpful. So, I two over two years ago. I had started looking into the University of Pennsylvania's possession of the crania of enslaved Black people. I went to a symposium uh, held by the Penn and Slavery Project because Penn had, for years, denied any connection to slavery, right? We are not connected to the institution of slavery. And so student researchers uh, started uncovering the connections and learned that early provost um, trustees and donors were enslavers. Additionally, they kind of talked about a race scientist named Samuel Morton. Samuel Morton uh, developed polygenism, which Leads to the 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 idea of phrenology, the idea that you can tell someone's intellectual capability by measuring their skull. And so we know that that's you know it's it's false science, right? Mm-hmm. The skull size doesn't really tell you anything about someone's intellect. And so, and you know the seventeen, the late seventeen hundreds and eighteen hundreds, he amassed a collection of skulls to prove his science. And some of them belonged to black Philadelphians who had been grave robbed. Some of them were given to him by plant- plantation owners from Cuba. He also has the skulls of indigenous people and, and and poor white people. And so, you know, when I heard this information, I was shocked mm-hmm. and I created a change.org petition and then I started talking about it publicly. And then I wrote an op-ed about it, calling for reparations, because it was around the time, uh, it was like 2019. So it was during the, the, the beginning of the campaign where all the Democratic candidates were talking about reparations. And, um, and so this has been uh, a, few, a few years of my work and other people's work, uncovering what Penn has And so I wrote a a follow-up op-ed a few weeks ago, and then someone from Penn called me and basically told me that she knew that they had the remains of victims of the MOVE bombing.
1: So there was like a whistleblower within the University of Pennsylvania who called you after seeing your op-eds and said you should know about this. Correct. Wow. So that's the context you know, you you, you you get this call, you decide to do something about it, and then you have to encounter the families of Tree and Delisha, Africa. Yes. How, how do you begin that conversation?
2: Um, it was hard. I, I talked to someone close to the, the families and this person suggested that I talk to a younger member of MOVE. And so I called Mike Africa Jr. Um, his parents were part of the move nine. He was actually born in prison. Wow. And um, he knew these young folks. He was family with these young people. And I told him, and you know he was shocked and upset. Um, and I told him that I want I wanted to tell the world about what was going on. And he instructed me that he was going to tell the parents. are still some of them are still alive um of delicia and tree um, and he would let me know when i could tell this story now when they died their parents were in jail already for something that happened in 1978 so they were buried when their parents were incarcerated and the remains were handed over either to the state or to other family members. And so those other family members in the state, I'm guessing, thought that they had buried the buried Delisha in Tree. Tree was supposedly buried uh, in December of 85 and Delisha was buried in 86.
1: On Wednesday, the 28th of April 2021, Christopher Woods, the director of the Penn Museum, said he had contacted members of MOVE to arrange the return of bone fragments belonging to members who were killed in the 1985 bombing. Woods also called the decision to use the bones in an anthropology course a, quote, serious error in judgment. For those looking for more information about the 1985 bombing and its aftermath, there's a 2013 documentary called Let the Fire Burn from Zeitgeist Films. I want to take you back. Um I want to talk about a young Abdul Ali. Sure. I mean, what were you like as a child? Talk to me about your childhood <laughs> if you want to. Uh,
2: yeah, sure. I I was uh I was a curious child. I grew up to two black Muslim parents. I grew up in West Philly. In a Muslim community. So, my first language actually was Arabic. Really? Yeah, I spoke Arabic um, as a child. And I was the first child of my mom who had been born into this community. My mom had converted to Islam in her late teens. And, you know, she came from a very Christian family. Um, Her mother was from Bowman, South Carolina, uh, and she recalls reading the Bible to her grandparents, mama and papa, who were functionally illiterate, so unable to read and write. And so my mother knew the Bible like the back of her hand. Like she just, she knew it well. And she said that in a dream, my great grandmother came to her and told her to, told her to read the, the Quran, which is, you know, mm-hmm. the holy book of, of Muslims. And she, she read the Quran. She then went to different courses to learn Arabic and she took her Shahada and became Muslim. And so I was the first child of hers that she had after she decided to move into this Muslim community um, so it was a strange thing as a kid where, um, on Fridays when, um, um, Juma happened, which is Sabbath, right. Um, after, or I think probably before I would get visitation by my mom. So I knew who she was. I didn't know why I didn't see her every day <laughs> because I grew up, uh, until, until the age of, probably five or six with people my age. And I would only see her on Fridays.
1: Oh,
2: So it was a very strange childhood. I was in class all day. We had uh, a teacher who was from Saudi Arabia and she would hit us with a paddle if we didn't get um, the (laughs) Arabic correct. (laughs) Um, And then something happened and my mother, Kind of uprooted us and we left the community. And we moved into this one bedroom apartment, not too far from where we were, like blocks away. And so I then had to start interacting with the world outside of this community. And so there was a lot of, I, I guess, cognitive dissonance, is a way you can describe it. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of shocking, or uh, it was just shocking. You know, people started speaking in English. I didn't understand what they were saying. Really? Yeah,
1: because I I mean,
2: that's all. We were only speaking Arabic in this community. Right. Especially the young people, because, you know, the older folks spoke English. Sometimes I'm guessing to themselves. But the younger folks, we were socialized to speak Arabic. So I was shocked at like, what is this language people are speaking? I started beating family. And I, you know, it was, it was definitely, it was an
1: intense period. How has that intensity shaped who we have now, the Abdu'l-Ali we have now? It made me curious
2: in ways that I think are helpful and are, are, and kind of shaped how I, who I am today. Um, it made me ask a lot of questions about the world, about my, you know, about who my family is. Um, And so it made me a very curious child. I had to learn English when I went to public schools. I had a situation where a teacher thought I was cursing and put soap in my mouth. Uh, She put like white soap in my mouth because she thought I was cursing. But I was saying something in Arabic. so I had these moments where I was just like, "What is going on? Like, what is this world, and who am I in relationship to it?" And so, yeah, it just made me a very curious child. I had to learn quick, quickly. I had to learn English quickly. Um, I was um, held back because I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't know English well. Um, the first year I was in public school, so I was held back a year um and uh yeah it just it it uh it greatly informed who i am today um i was always the oddball i guess (laughs) given uh and we were still practicing islam when we left so i was garbed up so i had a kufi on and you know um i had a huge head i was a skinny kid with this huge head and uh, people made fun of that and then. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they didn't understand where I was from. Um, yeah, it was just all the thing all the the, the the things happened as a kid. And my mother was struggling. I mean, she was a single mom for a long time. So she was often working and going to, to community college. Um, and so we were pretty much home by our, by ourselves. And um, you know, my father was not in the picture and I found out years later why. And so that was also something that I
1: didn't understand. You know, I'm thinking you and I are of the same generation. If if I'm doing my calculations correctly, you mm-hmm. will have been coming of age or coming into yourself kind of just before or just after 9-11 as kind yeah. of an openly identified queer Black muslim and i'm kind of curious about how that if if you can recall anything from that period or or how you yeah. navigated that moment but, which Ooh. obviously has a residual <laughs> ongoing <laughs> impact across queer societies and society writ large but if you could take yourself back to that moment do, do you do you kind of recognize yeah. or acknowledge a, a sea change or
2: yeah absolutely uh, you're so good at questions <laughs> It's so good. No, really. Um, this is a good question. It impacted me a lot because uh, people would say, you know, you should change your name. Often, still oh. do. Mm-hmm. I um, like a year later, maybe two years later, I was working um in this uh, was it telemarketing place, and I was n- I was not making sales. And so they told me I should use a generic name like Greg or something. And so I had to say my name was Greg on the phone um, or Mike or something, um, just so that people would not hang up the phone. Um, And you know, and obviously as a black Muslim, I wasn't visibly what they expected um, when they saw my name. So I wasn't attacked publicly as much as I'm sure other people who were visibly read as uh Muslim um were. Uh, but definitely when it came to jobs, I wouldn't get calls back. Or if I showed up, people would be shocked that I was black. Oftentimes people be like, Oh, you're I didn't realize you would be black. <laughs> that was said to me so many times. <laughs> Still people said that to me. Um, or people would ask, you know, how I got my name. Did I like convert in prison or like, cause that's the narrative. <laughs> um,
1: you know. I've been looking into it. I just, I've been looking into this because it's hard to miss, but looking into it, how Islamophobia really informs and shapes kind of homonorm- homonormative culture and our understanding of what it is to be queer in the West. And so I just find this, this particular area of, fascinating because I think that a moment like 9-11 for those of us particularly who were in the States I mean I was in Texas at the time I remember you know um, seeing it happen the when the second plane hit and and because I was part of a military family, we were like ushered out of the school, like within an hour, we were gone, we were home. And they were making a really big deal about it. And so I remember that being kind of like the defining moment that they took such great, they went to such great lengths to get the military kids home ASAP. Hmm. But I don't remember like kind of taking in any Islamophobia. I don't, I, I don't remember this being about Muslims as it were. And that could just be like selective memory. But I'm just very curious, like about how some people kind of embodied and internalized that this was an Islamic Mm. thing. So I've been kind of, I've been looking into it. And so I'm very interested for those who are at the intersection of blackness and Islam and queerness, Mm. like how that shapes your experience. But you've offered a really interesting insight already in that you're not, what people expect a Muslim to be in the first place. And so perhaps Mm -hmm. your first hurdle is is blackness and maybe not Islam or Islamophobia. Your first hurdle is anti-blackness instead of Islamophobia. Yes, I would
2: say yes. I would say that because I'm not as Muslim, that I, yeah, and I often questioned. like my connection to Islam is always questioned.
1: Right, as in you can't be like, for lack of a better word, indigenous Muslim or something.
2: Right. And also, like, people make assumptions about the nation of Islam, right? So they, like, they think that all Black Muslims are, like, connected to the nation, which is, in my case, not true. And a lot of Black Philadelphians are not connected to the nation of Islam. And so there's a lot of assumptions about, like, who I am, what kind of Islam I practice, um, and questions around its legitimacy or not.
1: Mm. There's... I. There's so many places this conversation could go. And I'm conscious of time um, because I could probably speak to you forever. (laughs) I am really curious about, I I think I saw a tweet or I read it somewhere that we're not radicalized once. We're radicalized two times, three times, four times. I wonder, could you pinpoint your moment? Because you Mm. are this firebrand activist. And I wonder if there was a watershed moment for you when you kind of looked around and said, absolutely fucking not
2: yes um it was 9 11. oh it was our response right it was our i also
1: really need to let listeners know that i did not know that (laughs) no you didn't it was it was 9 11 i was in high school right i was
2: about to finish high school when we invaded afghanistan and i recall that invasion i recall seeing the footage and, you know, I'm old enough to remember at least that people were obligated, right, were drafted to go to war during the Gulf War. Mm -hmm. Because my older sister's sibling went, was deployed. I recall that. And, you know, all my siblings, we have different fathers. So I recall my older sister, um, her brother from her father's side, was deployed. And so I remember that, I have that memory and I recall feeling really, really heavy about my future. I felt like I didn't have a future uh, because of, well, one Bush (laughs) being the president um, and then the war in Afghanistan and then the subsequent war in Iraq. And so I started doing a lot of anti-war work that was my main focus. After high school, I felt like I needed to do something. And so I organized. And that was just a, kind of a gut feeling. It was kind of my my body leading me to do that. And I say that because that's how I feel about all the work I do. My body leads me. I get hot. I get angry. I, I, I really don't process it. I just do it. Um, and eventually I'm able to reflect and really be critical about what what I did. But initially it's it's about my, my gut. My gut tells me this is wrong. My gut tells me that we shouldn't be in Iraq. We shouldn't be in Afghanistan. Um, and then um, from there was the organizing work. And so I did some organizing work, um, which led me to Germany Um, So I was in Germany for a little bit, for almost three years. And I come back to the United States in 2007, because my cousin uh, died of lung cancer, my first cousin, Donna. And I came back for her funeral. And I was actually going to go back to Germany. But I decided to stay and you know my mother got sick my grandmother got sick not too long after that um i i tested positive in december of 2008 for hiv um and so then i decide i need to be practical so i was working at starbucks i needed to work i needed to figure out my my life's plan um and so then i from starbucks i decided i should go into nonprofit spaces and work there because I felt like I owed it to myself and owed it to my community to not let someone else test positive, right? That was my kind of framework.
1: I mean, you're also, Uh, you're kind of saying it as if it was like naive in that ambition. Am I reading that wrong? It was. Right. Okay. Okay.
2: It was a very naive kind of position, especially for someone who I thought, like at the time was somewhat aware of systems, right? I had like organized against the war, but I had this like, I had this thought of nonprofits as being this sick, absolute safe space. And like, <laughs> and, Sorry for uh, listeners, you know, I just raised it. my eyebrows. <laughs> so, you know, I was, I had gone on to do the good work of, of testing folks for HIV. And, uh, and um, other stis
1: and at this time i think if i remember correctly you're working for the Mazzoni center in philadelphia which correct uh, yeah which uh, is focused on hiv testing and prevention um, for the lgbtq community correct right
2: yeah so i worked at Mazzoni. i was a tester so i was like the you know i was the lowest person on the i guess the totem pole you know i was the front you know the frontline i was frontline staff i did a lot of the hard work. I worked at bathhouses. I tested people at sex parties. I did all of the things. Um, And then I got a promotion. I got a promotion to run a program that was CDC funded. And, uh, you know, I was living my best life or so I thought. Um, I noticed that the culture of Mazzoni was hella white. And that be became a problem, eventually.
1: It became a problem. It became a problem, yes. yes.
2: At this point, I was kind of trying to understand what problem it presented.
1: And Busy Being Black will return in just a moment. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. Today, I'm in conversation with activist and organizer Abdul Ali Mohammed, who is known for their forthright and unapologetic approach to speaking truth to power. As you'll hear, Abdul Ali played a decisive role in the resignation of the CEO of the Mazzoni Center in Philadelphia after organizing action was taken in response to alleged wrongdoing. I think that phrase is really important. And I just, it, when you said it, and it just ding, mm-hmm. it became a problem because I think some there are so many of us who can relate to that sentiment and don't necessarily know how to mm-hmm. vocalize it, that we move into these spaces with this clear eyed, even rosy colored glasses that we can change the world. And then we move into these yeah. spaces and we we don't necessarily notice, because that is the praxis of white supremacy, white supremacy. Mm-hmm. we don't necessarily notice that everybody's white, that other decision makers are yeah. white. Until it becomes a problem, right? Until the problem. Until whiteness reveals itself.
2: Yeah, and I'll and I'll get into how it revealed itself because it's it's a juicy and fucked up story. Mm. Uh, my mother was dying at this point. She had been diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer. She was dying. Um, she required a lot of help and support, and so I was working and then kind of helping her through her last days. Um, It was very heavy for me. Mm. I was very close to my mom. We were tight. And so my my mom dies August 4th, uh, 2012. And I go back to work. You know, they only give you, I forget how many days, but it was like, you know, two days for a parent, you know, one day for a grandparent or whatever. So it was only like two days off after her memorial service. Um, and I felt really, I felt, I was i was upset that I didn't have the opportunity to take more space um, and that my job, Didn't really care about my emotional needs. Um, And then my father is back in the picture. He was released from jail. Um, He was released on compassionate release. I don't know if you know what that is, Mm -hmm. but essentially he was dying. And so the prison was like, we're gonna let you go and die outside of the prison. He had contacted me and he wanted me to be his power of attorney um, cause he had heard about the care that I provided my mother right. and he wanted that same kind of care. And I really was, uh, who it it's, that's another podcast episode, but he died, uh, September, 2013. I leave Mazzoni. I go work at a co-op. Um, and then I get a call back to work at Mazzoni and I go back. That's when I noticed the violence. So, you know, you talk about um, moments that radicalized. So it was 9-11. Then it was when I went back to Mazzoni mm. because they made me, one, my former supervisor called me to take the job back, but then they made me interview. And when I asked for more money, they told me, no, you have to start at the rate you started at back in 2000 and nine
1: hey (laughs) what
2: (laughs) yeah and i kind of i took the job because i'm like this is the devil i know i know i know these people well and immediately i started noticing things i started noticing the board was all white that upper management was all white and that became an issue because in philadelphia philadelphia is a mostly black city
1: yeah. So let me stop you. So what happens between leaving Mazzoni and coming back to Mazzoni that changes what you see and notice? I
2: think for me, I started wrestling with being uprooted from my neighborhood that I grew up in. I started seeing my people be displaced.
1: And this is because you're working at the co-op. Is that Co-op. Right? Okay, firm. fine. Yeah.
2: And so I noticed... I noticed gentrification, essentially. And then I start to have questions about the well-meaning white folks in my life who are like coming into the, the neighborhood and how that's impacting long-term residents who are black and brown. So I think some of that was a part of my consciousness when I go back to Mazzoni, like, let me filter through and think about this organization and how it relates to black people more specifically. And so, you know, I start noticing things. I start being vocal at staff meetings. So then I become a problem.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one likes a loud nigger now. You
2: know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then I'm the problem. I'm the problem, you know, in in the meeting. Right. I, I I have the hard questions. I'm confrontational. I'm not cooperative now because I'm questioning leadership. I'm like i'm be i'm be, I'm making people's I'm making the workplace hostile because I'm naming things
1: <laughs> yeah, and because you're not being a docile black right and so what 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 keeps you grounded in this, you know, because you'll know firsthand mm-hmm. of the particular limitations and restrictions that are placed around black men, dark-skinned black men in particular, around mm-hmm. how you're allowed to show up in the world and so what keeps you grounded in and moving towards this and continuing to challenge where what's that i think it's my um it's it's this thing
2: that this gut thing that i always have done which is if i know something to be true i name it Mm -hmm. and it's always been detrimental to my quote unquote success right i've always been that person but it started to elevate, and it started to become more. I became became more vocal about it. Before I would kind of hold on to it, swallow it. At this point, I was like, "No, fuck this! Like, I have to say something because no one else is saying anything yet." I'm having private conversations with staff, and they feel the same way. And so I was like, "If I'm going to be that person that that is targeted." I don't care anymore.
1: Yeah, if you're gonna be the subject of people's ire anyway, you might yeah. as well give them yeah. a real reason to not like you. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I encountered you because mm. I was working for a sexual health charity, and we were looking for people who we didn't know. Right, we were doing HIV mm-hmm. prevention and outreach in uh, communities of color, including LGBTQ communities of color and we wanted we're so tired of seeing all the same faces around hiv interventions and so i was doing my research and i don't know i can't even remember it was three years ago now i can't remember like how i stumbled across you but it was in the philly i think the philly mag
2: yeah philly magazine yeah Yeah. and it was
1: about your medication strike
2: oh yeah Yeah. and
1: let me tell you i was (laughs) i was at my desk and i was like what oh my god like this person is so incredible um, mm. Talk to us about this this medication strike, about this decision. And why you felt it was necessary to make this decision.
2: Yeah, I mean, so um, I noticed the, the culture of whiteness. I organized with other people, including Shania Kila and Dominique London. Um, we co-found the Black and Brown Workers Cooperative. And we started to take action. Um, and that leads to a bunch of things happening in Philadelphia. One is the historic hearing on racism in LGBTQ spaces that the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations conducts because as a result of our work in coalition with others, um, on October 25th, 2016.
1: And, and so following just for context mm-hmm. for listeners, this is the first report of this kind, I think, was done actually 1986, right? That was the first correct. time that the city kind of uh, did a, uh, an analysis of racism in the LGBTQ community.
2: Right. Correct. And so we, we start to push on Mazzoni and other HIV nonprofits to to make changes. And workers come to us. Uh, and help us form demands. And they highlight not only a a culture uh, of anti-Blackness, but also that the medical director uh, was involved in alleged sexual assault on staff and patients. And so we craft demands, we release those demands, and then we start organizing. This leads to two staff walkouts, um, a bunch of direct actions. And, you know, eventually the medical director is suspended, then resigns. But the CEO, Noreet Shine, is protected by the board. And before we launched the campaign on Mazzoni, I said to my comrades, I said, you know, because we always, when we talk about a campaign, we 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 strategize about what the outcome might be, right? And so, even before we released the demands, we talked about po- the possible escalating actions, right, um. to get our our demands met. And one of those escalating actions um, was my match strike. I I mentioned it. I said, you know, this is an HIV organization. I'm an HIV positive person. And if they don't meet our demands, I'm willing to use um, my body in this way and suspend taking my medication instead of doing a hunger strike. I'm in order to put pressure on the organization to meet our demands. And so this was the last kind of the last escalating action. We exhausted everything else, and they still said no. We're not going to meet your ultimate demand, which is to get rid of Nareed. And so that's why I started my medicine strike.
1: Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. And, you know, after, at the fourth day in the morning, I received a word that the board asked and she tendered her resignation. And so I, I resumed my medication on the fourth night of the strike, and it was it was heavy because I I hadn't been out about being paused.
1: Oh, plot worked twist! In HIV. <laughs> <laughs> That's plot <a> twist. twist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: I had worked in HIV, but I was kind of you know, one they tell you not to talk, tell your story, right? That your story is irrelevant to the work that you do, um, and so I didn't talk about myself. So I was testing folks, and people were testing positive and they had no idea um, who was in the room with them. And so this was, I was the first time being out to family, a lot of family members and to the public about my status in such a bold way.
1: And I got- Sorry to interrupt. So for many people is the first time they hear, the first time you disclose your HIV status is when you're saying that you're going on a med strike? Correct. Wow. Yeah,
2: so shocking. People were upset. Um, I mean, if you scroll through my Facebook and search around that time, med strike the hashtag, you'll see or declining heart. Uh, you'll see what people were saying. I mean, people were saying all kinds of things. Don't have sex with people when you're doing this. You're 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 trying to be a martyr. Um, they said all kinds of things about me. Um, My sister, my older sister threatened to like locate me and shove pills down my throat. Uh, It was was heavy. It was a heavy time, even though it was only, you know, that period, that short period of time.
1: And so what does this teach you at the time about how people view you as an HIV positive person and, and perhaps people living with HIV more broadly?
2: Yeah, I mean it it taught me that people see me as a vector, that I'm an I'm I'm an infected person and I should be managed by others, that I can't manage myself, right? Hmm. That I have no autonomy anymore, that people who become HIV positive aren't the property of themselves, but they are the property of others.
1: Yeah, they become that, wards of the community, as it were. Right, right. Right. And in right. yeah. in they
2: aren't able to make decisions about their body because if we were able, we wouldn't have contracted HIV. So we're like these people who are irresponsible on one hand and unable to make decisions on the other.
1: And so even people who are ostensibly, you know, uh, supportive—I'm doing air quotes—supportive, <laughs> um, you know, of of people living with HIV or what have you—they start to reveal themselves, right? oh absolutely
2: absolutely that this stigma and this
1: judgment is really internalized it's
2: internalized it's real it lives in the people who are in hiv work it honestly is in them more than i've seen in the public space there's so much judgment there's so much moralism connected to uh the conversation of hiv It's really, yeah, it it, it, it showed me so much about...
1: mm -hmm. So I'm just thinking about the conversation about good gays and bad gays. It's not even a conversation. It's the inference that, you know, um, you know, gays, gay men, let's be specific. Um, I know your pronouns are they, them, but just for the purposes of this example, um, is, you know, uh, there, there are good gay men, the ones who are... Um, homonormative and want to be in monogamous relationships and kind of bring their partner and they wear bow ties and they're very out uh, and they adopt and they want to get married and who are largely coded as white. And then you've got the bad gays who are the ones who mm-hmm. do drugs and have bareback sex mm-hmm. and who are on prep or who are HIV positive or who do or, 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 or all the things who fall yeah. outside. And then of course you've got you who mm-hmm. is uh, they, them,
0: mm-hmm. HIV
1: positive queer, Mm -hmm. black, Mm -hmm. loud, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, (laughs) and like yelling at people. And, Mm -hmm. and, and so these, this kind of, this really kind of comes to, comes to bear on your body and in you. And and I'm thinking of what you said earlier, that your body leads you and that all of this culminates in you deciding to put yourself and your body on the line again, to stand up for what's right.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know respectability politics came up like you said the good and the bad gaze, mm. right um you know i'm read as someone who isn't respectable i don't wear ties typically i don't i you know people's call my friends say that i dress like i'm um houseless a lot of times. <laughs> yeah friends. yeah um, or I, 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 my style is bohemian chic right um so i i constantly I look scruffy, I have piercings, I'm dark skinned. People read me uh, as aggressive because of that. And so I, you know, none of this works to my advantage. And then on top of that, I have the their nerve to be paused, loud and Muslim. Right. <laughs> like, you know, and so all of that came up in this context and it was wild. Like I, I received some inboxes from people that I just would never assume assumed that i would get about like what i'm doing and how horrible it is and you know and what i would do is redirect them and say well you if you want me to take my medicine tell narit to resign right if you want me to take my meds call mazoni center and tell tell the board to have this person resign but it, it was definitely an intense time and it really started to open up for me this conversation about Radical transparency, right? The power that I had in telling my story first versus having it weaponized against me, which it has been. My pa's identity has been used against me, right? Um, but in this moment, it held so much power to say, I'm not going to take my meds until you meet our demands. Because you, you kind of was-
1: pushed people to a point that became unacceptable. Right. Yeah. Did you know yeah. that it was unacceptable to going into it? Because I know that you said that it was like the last, it was the, like the uh, the last resort. Like if we don't get we, right. we know that me going on med strike is bad. But did you did you understand? Could you really understand the response no. that you were going to get from that?
2: I know. I knew that it would cause an uproar. Right. I knew that it would be a thing. I didn't know how much of a thing it would be. Right. Or how much of an uproar it would cause.
1: Yeah, because yeah. when I read that, I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh, wow. And of course, in the past three years, my education um, has come along so far, particularly as I continue mm. to read more about the politics around, uh, biopolitics around HIV and pharmacology mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. The, the many nefarious ways of, uh, that the pharmaceutical industry continues to take advantage of black and brown people, largely mm-hmm. queer black and brown people, both in, in, yeah. the, in the global north with air quotes and the global south. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to say this
2: quickly. Yes. I found out after the med strike that someone had done this in South Africa.
1: Zaki yes. Ahmad. Say the name again. Um, but I didn't
2: know Zaki Akmat. I believe that's the name. Yes. Um, But I didn't know that when I did it. But then I, some people told me afterwards and I was like, oh yeah, I'm clearly like standing on this person's shoulders and I didn't know it.
1: It's a a tremendous act of resistance. One that you've, as you've clearly laid out in this conversation, um, I'm I'm really hesitating here because I, I find that in our communities, we talk so often about courage or bravery or resilience. And that when we do that, we don't often talk about the situations that require such bravery and resilience. But at the same time, I just think, wow, the courage that took to to stand in your values or, or, or in your beliefs in that way and be prepared to put yourself on the line for the right thing. It's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of, it's breathtaking to me. its It's really amazing. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I didn't experience it that way. Right. I didn't in the work that I do. I often start from a place of of uh, like, again, I'm moved by my gut, (laughs) like it's a gut feeling like I need to do this. Um, Someone recently said that, you know, my ancestors talk to me through my through. They come to me in the forms of uh, bright ideas and gut feelings. Um, And so I I think that's true. I think that I'm told to do something and I I realize it by a gut feeling. or I realize it by a bright idea um, or as a way to take action. And that is ultimately what I think about. And then in retrospect, I see it as courageous (laughs) yeah but initially i don't see it as courageous i see it as a, a thing that needs to be done i am a very hands-on kind of person right so i'm like task driven because i'm working class uh, you know i don't really have a, a, a college education so i think of things in like hands-on what are the steps needed to take needed to be taken to ensure that something happens and so that's where my mind goes first, and then in retrospect, I'm like, "Oh, I can I can see all the, the the bravery and the, the the sublime <laughs> of yeah. it." But initially, I don't see that. I see it as a task to to be to be done. I'm
1: being called to ask you about your body leads you again to close. I yeah, I, I do yeah. want to ask you about um, what you hope for, which I always ask all my guests yeah. to close, but. Ooh what yeah. I wrote I was sensation is information and that comes um and maybe you've addressed it because you said the ancestors speak to you and maybe I just want to linger on that for a minute but mm-hmm. I, I, do you know Lamar Lamar Bruce um, yes yeah he we had a, a conversation the other day and we were talking about his new book ah. and um and he was talking about sensation as information right there's a the, mm-hmm. we get a we get a Feeling. I like that. And that is a form of information, and we have to respond to that feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. So when you said, my body leads me, I thought there's something happening in my life at the minute. Yeah. Where lots of people are talking about embodied experiences that that the body mm-hmm. contains within it, the message, the gift, the the way forward. And I just, I don't yeah. know. I, I want to invite you to talk about it, think about it, expand on it yeah. more.
2: That is, that is really, I like that sensation is information. I I totally believe that's true. I, my body has, has, has seen me through some stuff. I would say some shit, but I don't know if I can say that. You
1: can swear. But (laughs) (laughs) um,
2: in my body, my body tells me what I need to do. And I now have come to trust that. There was a time when I didn't trust it. I would say, no, that's not the case. No, I'm not in a dangerous situation. No, this doesn't need to be addressed. And then my body would constantly tell me otherwise. I'll give you an example. I've been wrestling with my father for a long time. There's so much to unpack there. And for a long time, I was ashamed about how I came to be in the world. My mother met my father in 1980 while he was in a federal detention center uh, because she was visiting my uncle, her brother, in New York, in Otisville, New York. And they caught glances of each other in the waiting, in this visitation room. And that's the first time she meets my father. Wow. And so that story to me is like horrific, right? (laughs) They met in prison. (laughs) Um, At least it was horrific for me when I was younger. Yeah. And, um, you know, he gets out on appeal in um, 82, and, you know, I'm here now. And so for the longest time, I I hid that part of me because I felt, like, ashamed of that. Um, And my father's name was Shakur, Salahuddin Shakur. And um, I started to listen to my gut, which told me I needed to learn more about my father's family and really honor the truth of how they met, how my mom and my dad met, even though it's uncomfortable because it's my story. It's a part of my story. And my mother as a child, I would ask her because my dad was again, in and out of jail. And um, I remember being frustrated and I asked her, I would repeatedly ask her like, why him? Like, why did you have a child with this person? And her response would be, "Well, you wouldn't be here." <laughs> mm-hmm. And I be like, "I know, but I would rather not be here." But it meant you not connecting with this person. Wow. Uh, and now I regret saying that to her. You know, she's gone. I can't say that directly to her. But you know, I've been called to like reckon with with his story and like see him as a complete person, and see him as a part of my lineage. Which for a long time I denied that right uh but something in my gut is telling me there's stories there to unpack and there's a lot of healing work to be done so like you said sensation is information
1: right and i I just wrote down uh, shame you know uh, shame around this you know if we think about the disproportionate incarceration rates of black men in the us Mm -hmm. and indeed in other countries as well um there must be so many innumerable instances of fleeting glances turning into children turning into legacy mm-hmm. there if that is where they keep us it makes sense that we might find love there or that we might find sensation or mm-hmm. progeny there right mm-hmm. and so whose shame is that like who mm-hmm. that's what i'm thinking of
2: That's really powerful. Like you, I haven't thought of it that way. I was always saddened, right? Because I I felt like it made my, it made my being here less legitimate, right? right? They met in prison, they glanced at each other. I don't know, you know, it was was clear to me that, you know, they had some kind of passion between them. I don't know if they loved each other. So, you know, it kind of... Mm -hmm. It brings up all these converse, the, these ideas of like being a bastard or like being wanted or being planned, right? Mm-hmm. And like you said, like that is love is found also in in, in the carceral state, <laughs>
1: right? Against <laughs> against, all odds, right? against all odds, against and, all odds, against all odds.
2: It it helped me to hold all the complexity of people I come from and to know that the story isn't cute all the time but it's my story you know and you ask about what i hope for i hope i hope that i live to see a world where black people have more degrees of freedom that we can move our bodies and be free in more ways than i currently experience in my body
1: Abdul Ali Muhammad is a black, magical, queer activist and organizer who was made and raised in West Philadelphia. They are one of the co-founders of the Black and Brown Workers Collective, and you'll find more links to their work in the show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The Tenth, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Your support of Busy Being Black means the world. Please do rate and review the show and tell others. The more you do, the more people like us get to hear the stories and voices amplified here. And finally, thank you to my friend and co conspirator Lazarus Lynch, a musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City, for creating Busy Being Black's triumphant and ancestral theme music. I'm so busy, busy. Ah. Yeah, I'm busy.